Okay. So, summary from the first half of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 28, we saw that everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus, that without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, there's really no point in being a follower of Jesus. There's no point really in the, the church or, of, of, you know, there's no point in anything that, that they did then or that we're doing now. Uh, you can just scrap the whole thing if there's no resurrection. But some were preaching that there was no resurrection of the dead at all of any kind. And so that's why Paul is addressing that. And he's saying without that, again, it's, it's all futile. Without it, you have nothing, not a zip, zero, nothing. Okay? We just forget it. Um, so now we're going to pick up here in verse 29. And we've got a few very confusing and often misunderstood Verses. Some of, these, some of these, these verses are viewed as some of the most confusing and most misunderstood in the whole Bible. So, all right, we'll start right in with that uh, this morning. So if you're, if you're you know, not awake yet, wake up because, uh, and, and try to stay, stay with me here for a few minutes. So let's read 29 through 32. It says, otherwise, you know, if there is no resurrection, going back to that, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Okay. Now what does that mean? And particularly we're asking the question, what is this baptism for the dead? That sounds a little interesting slash sketchy slash whatever else you could think of. And so a lot of people have tried to figure out, you know, okay, what does this, what does this mean? And there's probably over 200 different interpretations of that, most of which are just, you know, crazy and you don't even have to worry about it all. But there are a few um, understandings of it that we need to, to look at and then we're going to try to have, have a, you know, a better solution here. So, um, some view it as, okay, baptized for the dead as on behalf of the dead. The, if you're using ESV this morning, the English Standard Version, it actually translates it that way, on behalf of the dead. You know, trans, but it's, again, remember, we're, it wasn't originally written in English, it was written in, in Greek. And so there's uh, this preposition, huper, that's being translated as on behalf of. And certainly, in many places in Scripture, it does have that meaning as on behalf of, but not in every case. So when you take that on behalf of, being baptized on behalf of the dead, so a living person being baptized on behalf of a dead person, um, that's an, you know, an interesting idea. And there are some that hold to this. For example, the Mormon church, they baptize by proxy for the dead. That's why they're so interested in Genealogies. I don't think it's an accident that Ancestry.com was started by a couple of Mormon guys. Okay, so they want to, you know, learn all about all these genealogies and look into all of that, so they can baptize for the dead. Now, what they believe is that doesn't automatically save someone, but it puts them on the list as a, you know, they're on the guest list, and then get another invitation to, you know, to heaven. Okay, so. You know, they, you know, they encourage that, and, and so people will go, you know, to the temple, the Mormon temple, and they'll just read off names, and, you know, same person probably, you know, get baptized maybe like 10 times in a row, 
as they read off these names of people who have died, and then they'll get out, and then somebody else gets in, and, you know, dunk, 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 and maybe just get back in the line again. I don't know, but, you know, they just are constantly baptizing people on proxy for the dead. Some view, so that's one view, um, that that's something that they did then and should be done now. Now, we'll just go ahead and tackle that. That has a lot of big problems. Um, one, if that actually was something that would work, I mean, we're talking about a salvation issue here. It would be, like, all over the New Testament that you could do that sort of thing, but we don't find that. Um, we actually find even the same you know, words of Paul says it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. He doesn't give any sort of, you know, you could do this for somebody else and give them some sort of second chance. That doesn't work in the theology of Jesus and that doesn't work in the theology, you know, theology of the apostles that lends, you know, that's the same thing as the theology of Jesus. So, uh, others say Paul is not condoning this idea. It's just something that some people were doing. Um, at this time, and so he just uses it as an example of something else that is futile. That also has problems with it. Paul is not in the habit of telling us things that are, you know, things that need a moral judgment or an ethical judgment, and then just kind of not addressing that at all, just using it as an example. He doesn't do that. If something is wrong, he clearly tells you that it is wrong. Don't do that. I mean, that's, that's his style um, of teaching is to identify a problem and then to give you the reasons why that shouldn't be done. Uh, for example, with um, the issue of, you know, in the early church of the Jewish um, believers, you know, in Jesus trying to convince the Gentile ones that they needed to be circumcised, you know, as part of being right with God, um, you know, he doesn't just say, well, and some people circumcise. You know, no, I mean, he, he comes after that you know, with veracity of that is, you know, a terrible idea. Don't participate in that. Don't do that. Um, it's not a requirement. Um, so, you know, that's his style, and that's what we would expect in this case. If people were doing this in the church, he would certainly tell them to stop. Um, but there is a better solution than either of those, and the better solution you know, based on the Greek language, it's equally as valid to translate verse 29 as Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized because of the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized because of the dead? Okay, now that's a, that's a much better translation, and that translation is, again, equally as valid um, as the other, and you do see that Greek preposition being translated uh, this second way in other places in the New Testament. So because of... You know, it has the, the Greek, you know, equality going forward in terms of it's equally as valid, but it also has the context as so much better. Because Paul has already made it clear how it would be a futile to be a follower of Jesus if there was no resurrection. He's already alluded earlier in the chapter to the fact that he had once been a persecutor of the church. Remember that the persecution that he inflicted and that he was a part of, and that others were a part of, caused the martyrdom of Stephen and of others. That other, other people had died for their faith in Jesus. But what we saw, what we see in the book of Acts, and what we see you know, church history also testifies to this, that when 
the blood of the martyrs is shed. It's like seed that goes into the ground, and then new believers come from that, spring forward from that. Because of the testimony of people like Stephen, who was stoned to death, others then believe on Jesus. So this is something that happens. One you know, person sees persecution, sees people dying for the faith, looks into it, goes, well, it must be, you know, there's something to this, something worth looking into if people are willing to die for it, and then find Jesus themselves. So then when they are baptized, it's all because of the testimony of, of these that have gone before, because of these saints. And so this lines up clearly with verse 30. When it verse immediately after, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Paul is saying, you know, myself and the and the companion, you know, Paul and, the, and his companions were constantly under threat of being martyrs themselves, of being you know murdered for their faith in Jesus and for their preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. They were constantly at threat of that. And then he gives another example as he continues, continues on. Um, you know, he says, verse 30, Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. And it's, you know, that's a little bit of an exaggerated you know, phrase, but his, his life is on the line every single day. Um, and, for the, and he is giving up his life. Remember, he's, you know, he, he used to have this prominent position, and now he's done away with that. And... He is suffering because of the testimony, his testimony of Jesus. And so he's forsaken his life. And so in a certain way, he is dying every day. And he's, you know, very much pushed to the edge all the time. He's pushed to the edge all the time. Because uh, he has on his heart, you know, how are these people, these churches doing that I've, you know, that he's planted? How are they doing? How are the people that he knows, how are they doing? How are the other uh, missionaries in other places, how are they doing? And his prayers are, you know, continuously on their behalf. He's also greatly disturbed when he finds of people falling away from the faith or from, you know, false teaching coming in, like he's talking about here in the Church of Corinth, some saying that there is no resurrection at all. And so these things weigh heavily on him. He's under, you know, there's times in his life where he has plenty of food, and there's other times where he goes hungry. There's times where he's, you know, suffered, you know, shipwreck, and there's times where he's been put in prison. There's times when he's been beaten. So he's giving his life. So the point is, like, why am I doing all of this if there's no resurrection? Why are others doing these same things if there is no resurrection? He says, if in the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead... Do not rise, let us drink, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Seems there he's alluding to a certain situation where there's like wild beasts trying to kill him. He's got to fight them off. But he wouldn't even be there in the first place if it wasn't for the testimony of Jesus. And so if none of this is true, he's like, why don't I just spend my life you know, eating and drinking and just chilling out and having a good time? Because tomorrow we're going to die. And, and I mean, if, that's, if, if we just die and that's the end, that there's nothing past that, then there's no reason not to live a self-centered life. If there's no resurrection, there's no point in living a life that's based on God and others. 
you would only do that in the ways that would be completely and utterly self-serving for the here and now. For the benefit that you would receive. But there would be no point, like for example, you know, what we're trying to do in, in Tanzania to help these you know, girls have a school where they're safe, you know, to go to school and then can learn about God. There would be, if there's, if there's no resurrection and there's, there's nothing after this life, you know, what would be any point of, of that, of diverting resources away from your own family and from your own family's pleasure to invest in something like that? It doesn't, it wouldn't really make any sense. None of it really would make any sense. Because you just say, you know what? What difference does it all make if we're all just space dust and we're all just here temporarily? It's like, well, who cares what even happens to space dust, whether it's me or you? So I might as well just eat and drink, chill, and die. Thankfully, we know life is so much more than that. So moving on to verse 33, he says, Do not be deceived. Evil evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So again, it's, you know, this is in view, I think, of the the whole book that he's written, um, this whole letter to the church at Corinth. He's saying, you know, do not be deceived. That has to do with, you know, don't be deceived into believing that there isn't a resurrection. And that none of this matters. But also don't be deceived into these, these other things that people are involved in that are sinful. He says, evil company corrupts good habits. And this is just one of those true things. And, and let's just talk about that in terms of, of what we believe. What we believe. If you take, you know, ten books written by intelligent people that are full of false things but are you know, well-argumented and well-worded, and you take a person who is not, you know, mature in their faith, and, and you say, okay, read these 10 books, but in the meantime, read no Bible. Read nothing from people who are really striving to follow Jesus. Just read these things. Well, that person's mind is like, very likely to be corrupted <clears throat> because we tend to be sponges. We tend to be a little bit, we're not computers, but we tend to be a little bit like computers in that, you know, input, what you put in, then creates output. And so if you're putting a bunch of false things in all the time, you can't expect to have good out. And that's true about teaching. It's also true about our, our hearts before the Lord. And the purity of our hearts before the Lord. You can't constantly be putting garbage and filth in of everything from the world, from its, you know, its music and movies and television and books and everything that tells you that, you know, to live for yourself and everything that tells you to just enjoy any pleasure that you want for yourself and everything that tells you that these things that God calls sins aren't sins, but in fact should be glorified and promoted. And that your lust isn't wrong, it's actually good, and you should pursue that more and more. Well, if you have that, you don't have the Word of God and, you know, Christian fellowship in those things, like, what's a person going to be prone to do over time? But, you know, we want to be like, oh, I'm above that. I'm not influenceable like that. 
and we would just say what the scripture says, do not be, do not be deceived. Because that's one of the biggest tricks of the enemy is that you're bigger than that and you're in control and you can do what you want. You can stop when you want. You can stop whenever you want. You're not really addicted to pornography. You can stop whenever you want to. Until you can't. You see? Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And this is really important when he says awake to righteousness. like wake up about the reality of your life and the reality of God. Do not sin. I mean, that's like a, a command there. I mean, that's what we should be striving for. We shouldn't be striving to, you know, live an okay life. We, we should be striving for much more than that. It's not, it doesn't say you're not, if you strive for that or you awake to righteousness that you're not going to sin anymore. We know that that's not true. We know we still are, you know, going to make errors and make mistakes. But what is our goal in it? And anything in, in life, if you do not aspire to something more, you'll usually find yourself with less. How much more in the spiritual life? You know, if you're like, well, I'm just going to try to keep it to below 100 sins a day. That's, that's my threshold. Well, that's a lot of sins, you know. And try to keep it to below that. But if we're striving, like, I want to be more and more like Jesus. You're not so much worried about keeping count, but you're more worried about... I want to become more like Jesus. For some do not have the knowledge of God, or you know, some are not thinking about, some are not recognizing God and, and who He is. It's not that they don't understand that there is a God. And I was convicted about that. You know, sometimes when I'm I'm talking to someone who is a you know who claims, you know, I do believe in Jesus, but they're living completely contrary to that, and they they've kind of got you know one and seven-eighths foot in the world, and they got one-eighth of a foot that's kind of like, but I do, I, I, I do, you know, want to ultimately live a life that honors God. And so they're talking to that person, and, you know, we end up having that conversation, and a lot of times it's about, well, you know, your potential and your joy, and, you know, you'd be a lot happier if you were doing what God wants you to do. Or, you know, your, your life would have so much of a better impact, uh, you know, for other people around you. Think about the people around you and the positive influence you could have on them. You know, th- those things c- can be very true things. Um, but Claire and I were talking about that earlier, and, and you know, as I was talking to her about that, and, and she made a statement that was just really powerful, you know, say, what about the fact that you're offending God, that you're basically viewing all of God's, you know, love and mercy and grace towards you and you're spitting in his face. What about that? And so that really needs to move up to like the first thing, like, yes, our personal joy and yes, our impact on other people are hugely important. And those can be good motivators, but we need to start back at base one, which is, if you've experienced the grace of God, don't spit in his face. By how you're living your life. 
And he says, I speak this to your shame. And, you know, that's a, that's a hard thing to hear, right? I mean, you've ever had somebody that you really respected and care about, and they're just like, I'm more than disappointed in you. I'm ashamed of you. I mean, like, what he says here, I mean, that, that is, ouch. That, you know, that has a high ouch factor. And, you know, we'll see in the second book, you know, Paul, you know, talks about this, about you know, how it was difficult for him to, to write this and to say these things, but, you know, he felt like he had to. He didn't have much option at that point. Things had gone too far. So let's move on. Verse 35, he says, But someone will say, How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Foolish one, how, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies, and what you sow you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. And so there, it's a, you know, a, an illustration that he uses with farming. You take a you know, kernel of corn and put it into the ground, it looks far different than the plant that it's going to become. I mean, it's just this tiny, yellow, circular seed. I mean, it's just this little thing, and it's put in the ground, and then, you know, it turns into this, you know, six-foot-tall or eight-foot-tall, you know, green stalk of corn that produces, you know, fruit. I mean, that's radical. That's amazing. You know, not something we should just, like, take for Oh, well, you know, that's just easy. Uh, that's just how it is. You know, but I mean, that, that is really amazing. And so, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be different. It looks different. He says, all, and all flesh is not the same. But there's one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another uh, fish, and another of birds. And he's making these distinctions in the creation that were different than the rest of creation, but there's all, also variation within the creation. And then in verse 40, there are also celestial bodies, you know, things in the heaven, terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. So we've got, you know, a difference, um, you know, between the heavens and, you know, our planet. And listen to this, there's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. And there's a recognition there. You know, some stars are, are bigger than others. Some stars are brighter than others. And he says in verse 42, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. What does that mean? It means that you know, we're, we're born into sin because of our first parent, parents. And because, you know, because of Adam, that seed gets passed down to us. So we are, we are born into corruption, or sown into corruption. It is raised in incorruption. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And so we see that, you know, when God, you know, breathed life into Adam, you know, that was a, a fundamental change there, that, that Adam became, um, you know, unique and special, and that therefore we all are, 
We talk about being made in the image of God and having value because God made us in the image of God. All, really all of our human rights come from that. Any other human right that is not based on the image of God is really just war games and an illusion. If it's not based on the fact that God made us and Jesus died for us, it's not, it's not really adequate to go deeper. Because we're all just space dust. If there is no God and there's no one to give account to, if we're all just space dust and it really is just this evolutionary deal and survivors of the fittest, who is to say that one race actually shouldn't exterminate another race? Because isn't that just part of natural process? And so there's no basis outside of the theological basis of that we are made in the image of God and that Jesus died for us all. Like That's our foundation for all of our human rights. And that's it. And without that, you don't have anything else to stand on other than feelings. And it could be argued that you only feel that way out of fear. You're afraid you might be one of the exterminated ones, and that's just a sign of your weakness. All of that just falls apart. It's got to be based on the image of God. But even so much more, look, the last Adam, that's in reference to Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. It's like Adam had life within him, and, you know, we, again, receive certain benefits of being in the the family of Adam, that line. But there's things that Adam, the first Adam couldn't do. He couldn't reverse the curse. He couldn't make it so his descendants wouldn't be born into sin. He couldn't make it so that he wouldn't die or so that they wouldn't die. But the last Adam, Jesus Christ, he has that ability. He is the life-giving spirit. And so he, undo, he can undo that curse that was upon us. Verse 46, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also those who are heavenly. And also as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also shall bear the image of the heavenly man. How powerful that is. So it's, he's saying, you know, you, you can't only be associated with the first Adam. You, by necessity, like you, you need to, you have to be associated with the heavenly man. Again, Jesus Christ. So that you can bear his image. So that you can be who you were really designed to be from the beginning, but that sin had fouled it all up. Um, Jesus is the one who does it. And there, there is no way to have that outside of him. We also see in this that, you know, we're, we're still going to have a body just like Jesus did after his resurrection, but that body is going to be fundamentally different. The most important thing about that body is not going to be corrupted by sin anymore. You know, the new body won't have that. It will not have uh, the being born into sin. It also won't have the propensity for sin like we currently have. 
It's also going to be different in some, some other ways. You know, Jesus, when, after he was resurrected, he said, you know, to Thomas, who had doubted, he wasn't there for the first appearing of Jesus to his, the disciples. And so Thomas didn't believe him. And he says, you know, unless I put, you know, unless I touch his hands and his feet. And it's like, he's not going to believe, right? And so when Jesus appeared to him, he said, look, you know, touch. Yeah, there's a body there. You can feel it. But Jesus was, you know, his, in his resurrected body, he also you know, did some pretty cool things, like just showed up places and uh, walked through walls and stuff like that that, um, you know, our bodies cannot do. But perhaps they will have those same, you know, abilities in the future, but it'd be kind of cool. Because you'd just be like, yo, I'm here. And, yeah, I'm just going to leave. So I'm just going to walk right through that. You know, that's kind of kind of cool. Um, anyway, verse 50, he says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. And really what he's getting in that there is that, you know, when he talks about that, that flesh and blood, he's, you know, he's talking about that humanity that is still with sin, that in, in the sinful state, a person cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit corruption. Uh, you have to have the, you know, the blood of Jesus covered. You have to be forgiven. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. And so sleep, again there, he uses that several times as a kind way to saying died or dead. So we shall not all die, but we also be, shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruption is put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass that the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So we see that those who are dead, you know, Paul also says in, in the next letter, and maybe clarifying some of these things, he says, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You know, we're spiritual beings, right? So our spirit will be present with the Lord. The old body goes into the grave, but then there's going to be this resurrection. And some people over there will get kind of worried, like, well, what about those who had, you know, been reincarnated? Or what about those who, um, not reincarnated, what's the word I'm looking for? Incinerated. Yes, that's the word I'm looking for. Sorry. Cremated. 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 Cremated is kinder than incinerated. Yes, cremated. Um, are those, you know, who fell off a boat and got eaten by the fishes or whatever it is. Like, what about them? I mean, are they bodies going to be raised? Well, listen, no problem for God. Right? I mean, you can speak the whole universe into being. I'm sure he can put your atoms back together from wherever they are currently. But boom. You know, not, or, not yours, the dead people's. Okay. You, you, you understand what I'm saying. All right. Um, now that we've gotten through that, no reincarnation. We do not believe in such things. Just clarify, clarify for, the, for the internet, the webs. of Yes, okay. All right. All right. Um, but check this out. Death is swallowed up in victory. Like, we know Jesus had victory over sin at the cross. Like, he paid for our sins, yet we still have the issue of sin to deal with in our world today, right? We know the resurrection, there was, you know, that's the evidence that he was victorious over death, but we still die. Unless Jesus comes back first, 
Every one of us is headed to the grave. If he comes back first, what it says here, you know, you're going to be at the last trumpet, the twinkle of an eye, you're going to be changed, that um, incorruptible is going to, the corruptible is going to be changed into incorruptible, okay? But here, when it all happens at the end, then that death is swallowed up in victory. And we'll be able to say, verse 45, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, or the grave, you know, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the, you know, that's, that's really you know, where it comes from, that needle going into us, that sin that causes that death in us. And the strength of the sin is the law. Think about that. The strength of the sin of sin is the law. Because God gave that to us, one, so that people would know very clearly from him what's right and wrong. We have in that, in that Old Testament, but that Old Testament still serves a purpose. The law still serves a purpose because it shows us our guilt and our need for Jesus. It still has a purpose today. It shows us our guilt and our need for the Savior, the one who would die for our sins on the cross and um, who would free us from the penalty of our sins, but also free us from the power of the law over us. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's who's the victory through? The Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through ourselves or through other good people or the apostles or any church leaders at any point in history or any time. No. Our victory is in Jesus Christ. And he deserves our allegiance. He deserves our allegiance. He is worthy of it. Our ultimate allegiance has to be to him. Ultimate allegiance of this community is to the Lord Jesus Christ. Of this church. And it has to be. If it ever becomes anything but that, either it's got to be you know, that's got to be repented of real fast and changed, or it's got to get shut down. It's always got to be about Jesus. Now, check this out. Therefore, because of all this victory that we have in Jesus, because the resurrection is, is real, because death is going to be swallowed up, therefore, my b- beloved b- brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. It means you know, be, ste- be, f- be firm in your faith. Be firm in your faith. Be immovable. Don't allow yourself to be moved by anything. Don't allow yourself to be moved by what others do, by their desire to live a sinful life, or their desire just to, you know, be selfish and to just try to gain as many assets for themselves and have no interest in sharing. Don't let that move you off your position of living for Jesus and being a generous person. Don't let other people falling away for Christ or other people falling into false teachings and believing crazy things to get you to move your position that is firm on Jesus Christ. 
be immovable. If you're going to be stubborn about one thing in your life, let it be Jesus Christ. Some of us are prone more to stubbornness than others are. But if you're going to be stubborn about one thing in your life, be stubborn about Jesus Christ. And then he says, it's always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And it's really powerful that Paul writes this because you know, I'm sure at points he was tempted to think about the church in Corinth. It just ain't worth it. These people, you know, I mean, I go there and live for, I mean, he goes and lives there for two solid years. Seeing people come to know Jesus and then teaching them. Two solid years of his life. With all of his apostle, you know, authority as an apostle and power as an apostle that he has. And he spends two years with these people and then he hears they're believing crazy, some of them are believing crazy things like there's no resurrection. There's a dude like sleeping with his stepmom. That's gross. Okay. There's people, when they're having the Lord's Supper, people are coming and getting drunk and are being gluttonous while other people are going hungry, have nothing to eat. He's like, have I, I mean, he's got to be thinking, have I conveyed anything to these people? They get it at all. Like, I should, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily, given all the evidence, you wouldn't fault Paul if he had just said, dear, what I thought were some believers at Corinth, um, I'm done. You guys are too far gone. Like, this is, I'm, I'm finished. But that's not his approach. He writes to them in love, but he writes to them hard things. You know, he has a desire to visit them. You know, he, he wants, he, he's laboring in prayer. Prayer is hard work. He's laboring in prayer for them. You know, he's, and, and, you know, and the reality is Paul wasn't the only one who had worked in Corinth. You know, all who had been there working for the Lord could just be like, man. Those who were being faithful to Jesus within that community could just be like, this is not worth it. Let's move to a city where, you know, the believers there are actually living for Jesus. Could you blame them for that? With all these crazy things happening among them? But he says... Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So what I'm getting at here is that if anybody had the, the right to say, my labor has been worthless, it was Paul in his relation to his work in Corinth. Yet he doesn't take that approach at all. And so for us, how do we then apply this to our lives? Well, I think it's pretty clear. Because we can think a lot of times, you know, you, you invest a lot into an individual and then that doesn't work out. And we can go, that wasn't worth it. You invest a lot. Some of you have been in this city for a pretty good while and you've been, you know, trying to crank away for Jesus. And sometimes you may feel like there's not enough fruit relative to the amount of labor or work or effort. Well, I think Paul would, would kind of... Um, Gently rebuke us and encourage us on those sorts of thoughts. 
Because here's some realities for us. One, we don't know all of the results of our labor. And you won't until the end. You won't. Because sometimes even what you've done in one person, like the efforts you've made in one person's life, may not, that person may not take that, might not believe in the Lord, might not live for Jesus, but then others around them have seen that. And it affects how they live and what they do. And other fruit comes from that. That's one thing that happens. But there's also times, I, I remember, this is cool, this is a guy in, in uh, college I went to, university I went to in, in North Carolina, and he was on the basketball team. And, um, you know, I, I tried for years to you know, impact him for, for Jesus. And it was always like, you know, he, he had one of those smiles. It was a great smile. It was also a smile that told you, like, not going to happen right now, buddy. You know, but lots of time and lots of effort with that guy. And, uh, you know, maybe five years later, I'm at a homecoming. And um, this guy's name is Ricardo. He comes up and just gives me the, the biggest hug. And he's like, dude, I just want you to know. Like, I found I'm with Jesus now. Like, I'm living for, I, I believe in him. I'm living for him. You know, my family's doing awesome. Like, and then he's, you know, I'm sure, he said, I'm sure you thought there were times that what you were doing didn't matter. But I want you to know that it did. And we don't always get that. That's rare that we get that moment. But that was one of those moments that I can take with me for the rest of my life that says, it is worth it. Because that's a guy who's now his whole family has been impacted and you know, the communities that he's involved in. And he's a person of influence. It's like, man, that's awesome. And so the Lord lets us participate in some things like that. But even in the worst situations, our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And, and, and let me tell you the main reason why it's not in vain in the Lord and it doesn't have to do anything with results. There's a main reason why that doesn't have anything to do with results. is because Jesus asked us to. And it's obedience to Jesus. And he's pleased with it, whether people respond to it or not. It honors him. It glorifies his name when we labor for him, whether it's of any tangible benefit to another human being or not. And isn't that enough? Because there have been people, you know, that they never see the tangible fruit. Again, here on this life, of their work. They've been you know, missionaries among a people group and see no one believe in Jesus having worked there for 30 years. But then people that come in behind them and build on that foundation that was made and there is fruit. And many people come to know Christ. Are you okay with it if you're the, one of those who doesn't get to see a lot of fruit? You just have to plant a lot of seeds. I pray, Lord, I mean, we have seen fruit. I pray we get to see a lot more of it. That's always awesome when it's happening and it's immediate and it's tangible. And we can say, yes, but it's still worth it. Even if there isn't the tangible fruit that we get to see because Jesus is worthy. And that's what this is all about. We come here every Sunday to take the bread and the cup and to worship him together because we're saying, Jesus, you are worthy. You're the one who went to the cross for us. 
your body broken for us. You're the one whose blood was shed for us, and you are worthy. You are worthy of worship, and you are worthy of our whole lives. You are worthy for us to labor for you. You are worthy of us to be steadfast and to be immovable. You are worthy of us not giving up. You are worthy of us continuing to crank, to grind, day in and day out for Jesus. To grind. That slow, methodical, steady, a lot of times not that exciting, grind. That's what Jesus asks us to do for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you. We thank you for your goodness to us, God, your love for us. And um, we just pray that you would, again, press on our hearts, Lord, that you are worthy. You're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our praise. And as we take that bread and the cup and cup this morning, God, we say thank you. Thank you for sending us, Jesus. Jesus, we worship you and we praise you. Please fill us Fill us all with your Holy Spirit to overflowing so that our labor would not, would not only be for you, dear Jesus, but it will also be in you, in your power and in your strength, knowing that we, of ourselves we can do nothing of eternal value. We can do nothing, Jesus. It's all you. And so please use us for your purposes and for your glory. Thank you for the encouragement you give us to keep on, even when it's hard, even when we have many reasons just to turtle up in a corner and cry, that for you it is worth getting up and continuing on. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.